pleasure is really, really important. I think it's important in ways that we don't often think about or acknowledge. For me, pleasure is an equity issue. It's a justice issue. And it's an issue of life quality. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are creating their legacies and contributing to the greater good. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and this podcast is my way of bringing some light into the world, which is feeling pretty dark and broken right now. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging. You can find out more about Judy on her website, judybanker.com. Well, as always, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a wonderful interview for you today. We'll be speaking with Laura Zam, and she's the author of the best-selling book, The Pleasure Plan, One Woman's Search for Sexual Healing. She's also an award-winning health writer who's been featured in the New York Times, in Modern Love, Salon, HuffPost, and others. Her work explores the impact of trauma on our lives, and in particular, our sex lives. And as a child of a whole cost survivor and a victim of sexual abuse herself, she uses her experiences to offer help and hope to the many people who are in need of healing. And an additional note, today would have been Anne Frank's 91st birthday. Laura just made me aware of that fact. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you. Um, so I want to start with a, a a question, and it really is sort of forms the basis of so much of your work. It's simple. It is certainly complex, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let you have at it. And that's the question about why is pleasure so important? Mm, pleasure is really really important. I think it's important in ways that we don't often think about or acknowledge. For me, pleasure is an equity issue. It's a justice issue. And it's an issue of life quality. So I'll, I'll talk about each of those briefly. It's an equity issue because in our society, some people are entitled to more pleasure than other people. I'll give you a a, a non-sexual example. When I go to conferences, you can't see me, but I'm a very petite woman on the slim side and small bones, and I tend to be very, very chilly (laughs) easily. (laughs) And when I go to a conference, I am freezing in the ballroom, always. Well, I've learned actually to wear many, many layers and I never (laughs) wear sandals because I learned. So conference ballrooms are designed for a 200, the temperature is designed to be 
perfect for a 200 pound guy who's wearing a wool suit. Mm -hmm. And so we, we think about the world, we don't think about how the world is actually designed to accommodate perhaps this 200 pound guy in the, in the mm -hmm. suit. And when it comes to sexual matters, we are also very oriented toward male pleasure. The whole mm -hmm. construct of what we call sex is actually a foreplay, warm up, so to speak. Heter this is heterosexual sex, mm -hmm. right? There's a warm up of the, let's say, female partner so that the male partner can have his main event. <laughs> right? We, it's, it's sort of preparatory, it's right? Preparatory. It's like sort of setting the stage yes. for what needs to happen. Before. It's before. So we uh -huh. so so equity issue because there are people in our population who are not valued. Their pleasure is not valued as much as someone else's pleasure. And it's baked in, baked into uh, our norms, our society, all kinds of constructs. Um, justice issue is really something that I'm thinking about more and more. So when it comes to sexual trauma, we know that there are very high rates of childhood sexual abuse among people who are incarcerated. As just one example, there is a mm -hmm. pipeline from childhood sexual abuse to mass incarceration. There are all kinds of justice issues that are very hidden from society, how abused people are, right? Or this kind of abuse can then uh, turn into all kinds of different problems later in life. Rain, which is the rape and incest, I always get it wrong, <laughs> mm -hmm. the Rape and Incest National Network, uh, they've mm -hmm. documented on their website all kinds of statistics about problems that can manifest for people who've been sexually abused in some way, assaulted, etc. So there are justice issues in terms of being able to have this kind of healing, to have access to healing so that it can circumvent later problems in life. And another justice issue, which to me flows into this quality of life issue, concerns my mom. You mentioned I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor. So when my mother was in the concentration camps, she was in two of them, they would have a practice of a morning count where the survivors would have to stand outside in a field with their arms up so that everyone could be counted. Well, there were thousands and thousands of prisoners and the weather in Poland could be extremely cold in mm -hmm. the winter, especially, and so, the prisoners would have to keep their arms raised for hours on end, and if they put their arms down, they could very well be shot right there on the spot. So this is a form of torture. And I ask myself, what's the opposite of that? So we talk about social justice as a, a, an external, external from our body, societal kind of balance of the scales. But I think also internally for people who have 
suffered some kind of harm, what is the opposite end of that that could help to heal? Because I think there is a kind of internal justice that happens, if I may use that term, that we mm -hmm. need something that is really compensatory. And to me, on a very basic level, the opposite of horrible physical sensations, the opposite is uh, the opposite is great physical sensations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to make it really sort of simplified, when you're really hot and thirsty, it's cold water. Is that is you're looking for the balance, the opposite, to sort of neutralize that experience. Correct. And if you're a little bit thirsty, or you're a little bit hot, then maybe you can, maybe even room temperature water will work. But if you're very, very, very hot, then let's say you have a, a fever of 103, 104 degrees, mm -hmm. you need extreme cold. So you need to go to that opposite end. You need to have a kind of extreme remedy. And pleasure is something that's beyond good. It's great sensation. So I think that it's important to acknowledge that that's, that's really important. You know, in all of my learning and studying and experience as a psychotherapist, I've never heard of healing uh, constructed in this way, of recovery constructed in you just, not just, you need more pleasure. We are seeking out the opposite experience to neutralize um, the damage. Do you remember when you came upon this notion of pleasure being the stuff of healing? Uh, I think that it actually goes back to this more elemental experience that you just touched upon with the hot water. I was living in Prague for some time in the 90s, and I had a, a boyfriend that I was living with, Alish. And one day I was, uh, I had a cold, and Alish said, what do you do? I, I got up to go to work because I'm an American, and that's what you do when you have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> and Alish said, what are you doing? You can't go to work. <laughs> And I said, why not? I'll just take some cold medicine and I'll go to work. He said, no, here in Czech Republic, when you have a cold, you have to stay in bed for three days. Oh. Your employer, your, your boss, it will not let you go to work if you have not been in bed for three days. And I said, oh my God, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not going to stay in bed for three days. And um, he said, Laura, he said, in your language, now Alish had a habit of knowing the English language better than I did. <laughs> he said, Laura, in your language, isn't it true that the word cold, the adjective, I am cold, is the same as the noun, to have a cold? <laughs> he got that technical. And I said, uh, yeah, so what? <laughs> and I'm really annoyed. And he said, well, it's same in, it's same in Czech. We have the same thing. Rima is cold and, and mom Rimo is I have a cold. He said, um, he said, this basically he described the fact that there's a reason why 
we call this a cold. A cold、mm. is means that the body is da da cold.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the remedy he taught me was: you have to stay in bed. Not just stay in bed. You have to stay in bed. And you have to sweat for three days. Three days of extreme heat、oh. is the actually the cure for a cold. And this turned my mind around. And I think when I was when I embarked upon this sexual healing project in 2011, it came back to me this notion that oh, I I have to find something that's、um, that's going to yes, that's going to be this opposite. And that's going to be also a, a missing piece of this whole equation, because I didn't feel that I had ever been taught pleasure. That I had done a tremendous amount of healing with fantastic, fantastic psychotherapists. I love therapy. I just went back <laughs> into therapy, and I'd done such tremendous work with them. But it really was more based on psychological and emotional healing, not on the physical healing. And so I felt that I was missing this piece. I was missing this compensatory piece of、so、being able to balance the harm that was done to my body. Another analogy is I use sometimes is、um, let's say that I had had instead of sexual abuse, I had had my knee、uh, had been damaged in some way by a, a bully. When I was a child, and let's say that it had been rather damaged, you know, rather harmed, that this person had taken, let's say, a hammer or something, you know, horrible, and had like smacked my knee. Well, later in life, I might have psychological and emotional issues related to that early abuse. I may be angry at my mother that she didn't protect me. I might be triggered if I saw someone who looked like the bu- the bully. I might feel. You know, a, a vulnerability that I might be attacked, but also I might have problems with my knee,、mm-hmm. physical problems with my knee, because that was the part of the body that was actually hurt. And I feel that this is a part of sexual healing that we miss. These body parts are actually harmed; they're carrying their own wounds. And pleasure is the way that. We can first of all make sure it's a gauge of whether or not these parts of the body feel safe. It's kind of like a litmus test to figure out if these body parts feel safe,、um, and then it's providing that. I guess the the、um, going with the analogy of the heat, right? It's it's applying that heat, that compensatory heat that、uh-huh. the body needs, that compensatory sensation. You know what occurs to me too is that in order to agree with this、uh, this notion or this way of thinking, you have to get to the point where you're saying, "I'm entitled to pleasure now. I'm entitled to being. You know, my pleasure is important, and I'm important."、Mm. And I would say, and 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 tell me how you think about this, because I know you're a certified trauma professional, and、mm-hmm. you've thought about this in all different ways. But that in itself is a step forward in recovery, 
to be able to say, yes, I'm ready to allow pleasure. That's not a place I think that most people start as victims. Yes. And I I think that that's very, very interesting because, and you can tell me as a mental health professional if this is true in your own practice, but it seems like there are these early templates that get established for anyone with regard to our early childhood experiences. And if abuse has been part of one of those experiences, then that's a message, a message that, okay, your body could be used, let's say, as an instrument for someone else's pleasure. And it's, it's absolutely not the integrity of, of your health and well-being is, is, um, is unimportant. So it seems that, um, you know, abuse does send that message, right? You're not mm-hmm. important. Absolutely. Your life is not important. Your life is, you only exist to the extent that I can get pleasure from you or that I can, right, that I can let Absolutely. out my aggression or my need for power. It's the ultimate objectification. Yeah. And I would even go further and say it's actually a form of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. I feel that we are obliterated in these kinds of situations. So I think that, yeah, that becomes part of a template that we carry forth. I'm not important, but my life is not important. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter whether I enjoy my life, whether I um, have any kind of happiness or joy or success or anything that that we're all seeking in life. yeah, that could be wired in that that this is not for us. That's right. And then you add, we can add different layers of race, of gender, of, you know, there's all of these layers of where are we in the entitlement, you know, on the entitlement question. Yeah. And I've been thinking going back to this, the, um, pleasure as social justice or as justice, I'm thinking of, um, of, all that's going on now with Black Lives Matter. And I was thinking about, okay, well, I think that we could even use our own pleasure activities and pleasure environments to help us to be aware of where we may be inhibiting our own pleasure, but also maybe where we are unaware that other people are do not feel entitled to the same pleasures or are not entitled that society is not allowing them to enjoy the same pleasures i was thinking of like a really lovely park let's say or, or a lovely school right that some people in their neighborhood in their environment this is bestowed upon them of course you could have a great place to have your children be educated of course you could have this lovely green space but in other neighborhoods it doesn't exist that's right in fact it's so interesting that you say that because i'm I'm a big fan of green spaces forest bathing Mm. and the science behind that and it's so fascinating you may be familiar with this but when you take aerial photos you can tell from above which are the areas of poverty and Mm. which are the areas of affluence based upon the density of green space Right. Oh, my goodness. And and we know green space is health promoting. 
Yes, because it's, well, it's health promoting on many, many levels. It mm-hmm. also, as part of that health promotion, it provides pleasure. Mm-hmm. It provides all kinds of visual stimuli, aesthetic mm-hmm. stimuli that, that bring us doses of joy, jolts mm-hmm. of joy. Yes. Right? That's so, so yeah. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. So, you know, what I'm thinking about, as well and this is a little bit uh i mean it's it's a it's sort of taking the lens and and broadening it a bit but my understanding and belief and tell me if you think this is right i think oprah really started this um awareness is that there are many many people people who are not incarcerated who never will be incarcerated people all over that are walking around with the unhealed wounds of sexual abuse mm-hmm. because we know how rampant it is and you know you you noted that in the beginning of our conversation what does that mean for a culture that there are so many people walking around maybe never even having acknowledged this fact but that that's the way they interact with the world. How does that affect a culture? Well, there are a lot of a lot of health challenges that are associated with any kind of abuse, child abuse, and particularly sexual abuse. So one way it affects a culture, I think, is that our healthcare system is actually inundated with people who've been abused and have health challenges that are related to it, and yet we're not really looking at the connection between the two. And so I think that there's, um, yeah, so there's all kinds of different hidden ways that the health of our society, the well, our, our collective well-being and, and the extent to which that's affecting our, our culture, is um, is affected by this in such an invisible way. I think that people who have been sexually abused could um, are looking for healing in different kinds of ways, and that could show up in our culture as well. Some people um, move towards sex industries, people who've been abused. Mm-hmm. I don't think that everyone in, in, in sex industries has that history. But many people do because it's um, they're looking for healing in, in some way. It's a form of empowerment for them. Um, I know many survivors who made that choice in their lives. Someone who became a dominatrix, for instance, somebody who was um, went on to become a stripper. Uh, and, and it's not uncommon to because they then are in a, a position of power. They feel themselves in a position of power. So I think that our whole notion or the way that sex permeates our society is very much through the filter of sexual abuse survivors. Very, very mm-hmm. much so. Marilyn Monroe was sexually abused on, from, uh, from multiple men early in her life. And I'm not going to psychoanalyze her. Well, that I did not know that, yes. and I and now it makes me wonder how it was for her to be such a sex object, an icon of sexuality. Exactly. So there is absolutely, I, I can say, is uh, you know sitting on the couch, <laughs> psychoanalyzing mm-hmm. her, you know, uh, retroactively <laughs> from uh, from decades and decades ago, but 
to me there is a connection but then she became this sex this sex symbol this iconic sex symbol mm -hmm. so she became a model for female sexuality but it may very well have been informed by the fact that she was sexually abused mm -hmm. and felt that she needed to again we come back to this compensatory thing some survivors take that particular compensatory route a, a kind of hypersexualization or it might have just been that you know she was of course a beautiful woman society bestowed it upon her that she would be you know every man's fantasy um and then she maybe she took that on with a connection of you know connecting that to her early abuse that well okay this is what i'm good mm, for this basically. is what i'm here for yes yeah yes so i think our notions of what is sexy are very much very much come from um come from survivors themselves and choices they've made and also their own healing that may take this form or the way they they've been manipulated in society yeah, that that is really fascinating. And I've shared with you uh, in previous conversation about uh, now when I do an intake interview, um, I ask about have you had any experiences that were non consensual? And I have, you know, that was fairly uh, recent, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago in my career, but I was finding that uh, when I was interviewing uh, the college students or the grad students or whomever, that I could not not ask that. It was so surprising mm. to me how many of these students would say, well, yes, that was my first experience, or yes, a couple weeks ago I went to a frat party and there was alcohol involved and it wasn't, it wasn't um, what I would wish for. Yeah, and uh, I, I think I mentioned there's um, there's a woman, uh, her name is Jane E. Boone, and she is uh, a novelist, and I did a panel with her recently, and mm -hmm. she called uh, this, she coined a phenomenon that I, I was so taken with. It, uh, she said, well, there are also these gray area sexual encounters. She said, she called them, uh, she said, it's not rape. It wasn't rape, but it wasn't right. Mm -hmm. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. It wasn't rape, but it wasn't right. And I just really love that phrase so much because I think it captures these, um, these experiences that are in addition to what you documented on the intake, right? People saying, I, I, I know I had a non-consensual experience. And of course, we're, we're talking about the prevalence of that, which is shocking, still shocking, even after mm -hmm. two years after Me Too, mm -hmm. right? Um, but on top of that, there are all these gray area encounters as well, which may not be on paper a non-consensual experience, but yet they may be imprinted on the body as trauma. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. The body is not making that distinction. The mind is is in a in turmoil, perhaps saying, "Well, I I want to call it rape. I want to go out and you know do something about this. I want to talk about it, or I want to, you know, at least give it a label because I feel so horrible 
I feel so wounded. And so it, it would be easier if I could just give it a label and say mm -hmm. that I was raped. But mm -hmm. I don't feel like I can because it's so confusing, it's confusing. So I think sometimes for people in that limbo, or in that area where they can't actually use that label or feel that they can't, because of course, everyone is free to, you know, to categorize um, these experiences as they wish, um, especially if people felt coerced, let's say. That's something that we don't talk about enough. The coercion can take many forms. It could just be a kind of relentless pressure, right? Um, and so then the, this person, the victim, they just give in and say, okay, fine, here, take it off my pants, fine, mm. let's do it. Um, mm -hmm. And then that survivor may not feel like, um, like he or she or they can say, I was assaulted, because in the end they just said yes. They mm -hmm. said yes, but they, were, they, they didn't feel that they really um, made this choice. In, uh, in, in an authentic way. They were just trying to get out of a situation. So I think those, those um, areas are also traumatic and extremely prevalent. I personally don't know any, uh, any female who's not had at least one, if not more of those experiences. It wasn't rape, but it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And I know that you, one of your, the hats that you wear, uh, there are many of them, but that you've done a lot of presenting around college campuses pre-COVID talking about uh, sexuality. Mm -hmm. What have you discovered? I found some really interesting things. Oh, you know what? Actually, I wanted to, um, Jane Boone has a book coming out, so I just wanted to mention oh, it since I, yes. mentioned it. I mentioned her. Um, her yeah. book is called, it's a novel, it's called Edge Play. Mm -hmm. Edge Play, and it's a, a, about a woman who is, um, becomes a dominatrix as a, as a form of power. So, okay. uh, yeah, I think we'll it- Put that in the program yes, notes. Yes, put it in the program mm -hmm. notes, please. Jane Boone, B-O-O-N, and it's called Edge Play. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So uh, college campuses, what I found is um, the work that I do on college campuses, I've done prevention work, and I'm doing more and more work with survivors. There are increasingly peer groups that are started on campus uh, that are survivors taking it upon themselves to provide services for other survivors because they feel that the campus is only offering two options if somebody does report uh, a sexual assault. The two options are are great options, but some some survivors find that they're not. It's not enough. So the two options are counseling, which uh, I'm sure you'll agree is a very very good <laughs> <Important>. idea. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, really really important. And the other option is justice. So that uh, if this person, there's a big question, right? The university would, mo many universities would like to sweep this under the rug. They don't want the person to actually go through with a whole, mm -hmm. right, with a whole case. Um, but that's their big question, right? So they're like, okay, fine, let's see if we can get you into counseling. And also, are you going, big question, are you going to press charges? And mm -hmm. if you are, mm -hmm. what, what's the process going to be? So, but a lot of survivors, um, first of all, they may not, they may not uh, feel that they want to go through a justice process. But whether or not they go through with that, they still are, 
I feel are kind of left not having some basic, um, basic sex ed that I think fits very nicely with, um, with further prevention for these survivors and on the campus generally. So I think that right now the way that we are talking about um, consent and providing consent education, it, it amount, it's great, right? Where it's great to have this, these tools out there and uh, a consciousness around how we could not, how we can prevent harming another person. That's fantastic. Um, but from a sexual standpoint it, a standpoint, it actually sets a really low bar for sexual encounters because what it is saying is that if you don't get assaulted, then you've had a successful. <laughs> oh, I see. Sexual I interlude. See. That's all you need. That's all you need. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that these young people are not getting this additional education. And here, this is, again, for like the good versus great. They're not getting that pleasure education. How can I turn these encounters into something that is not just, um, I didn't get raped, right? It's mm -hmm. like low bar. How can I expand upon that so that I can find pleasure? I can find a great sexual experience. I can find a great sexual experience because there is that equity issue. Why shouldn't mm -hmm. I have as, as great an experience as the partner that I'm with, right? There's that justice issue. Maybe there's been some kind of attack in the past or a bad sexual experience or it wasn't, uh, wasn't rape but it wasn't right, something so that pleasure could then help this person to find um, something compensatory that's going to be healing, that's going to um, help the a development of their own agency, which is going to be part of that, big part of that healing. Um, so I think that it's, um, it's something that's missing from this, from this equation. And the last time I, I, I talked right before the pandemic struck, uh, I was doing a, a talk at Johns Hopkins and I, I spoke to a group there and I talked about this particularly. And one woman asked the question and it was so striking to me. She said, but how do I how do I ask for equal pleasure and feel like I don't have to apologize? Mm -hmm. And and then I had conversations with these uh, mostly women in this in this group, and they told me that it had never occurred to them. Right. And these are these are very savvy women. Right. It had and never crossed it, their minds uh -huh. that they should identify what their own pleasure it is and that they should advocate for it when they are with a partner. So it really ultimately when we boil this down it's about who has the power. Yes and power is, is uh, I just touched upon power is a huge part of that healing as well. We talked about the compensatory thing just in terms of sensation but I think infused in that is, is, is power is being able to advocate for oneself, to be able mm -hmm. to identify desire and to act upon it. I think in many ways, 
desire is is really the the essence of power right it's saying i want mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right i i want and uh and then to take that into the the next phase i want and i'm gonna get it mm-hmm. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. power that is what power is it's it that's all it is in many ways right mm-hmm. just like this this fundamental deservedness yes yes deservedness and then acting upon that and creating an experience and taking it all the way towards satisfaction. Sometimes I, I talk about something I, I call the arc of pleasure, which is, it has three parts. There's desire, there's process, and then there's satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Because the desire is for something often concrete, right? I want ice cream. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not enough to want ice cream, and it's not even enough to go to the store, although that could be its own form of pleasure. All of these are, right? All of these um, are parts of that pleasure right, arc. So right. it can be pleasurable to, to pick out the ice cream. And anticipate <laughs> it and look at all the flavors. Yes. And if you're like me, see what's on sale. <laughs> all of it. And and. Scientists have shown there's more dopamine in the anticipation phase than yes. there is in, in, in having the actual ice cream. But <laughs> having the actual ice cream is critically important. That closes the, right, closes the loop. The That's loop. the end yep. of the arc. So I think that when we talk about pleasure, we need to talk about all of these things. We need to talk about desire, being able to identify, to feel that deservedness as, um, as you're talking about so you know, so powerfully and poignantly, um, the process, which is that agency, that's like pure power, getting it, right? Going to get it, whatever it is. And then being able to satisfy whatever that, whatever that desire is, um, being able to see it all the way through. Mm-hmm. I love that construct. It's just simple, but makes so much sense. And now I'm wondering, Laura, you know, we have a lot of people from all over the world listening with very different experiences, but I suspect many of them are curious um, and feeling um, like they want to know what the first step might be in uh, starting this process of what what is it that I even desire? As your participants said, you know, I am interested in this, but I don't know if I can do it without apologizing. What do you think would be the first step for for people? And now we're talking with not mostly not college students, but uh, middle-aged uh, women, mostly some post-middle-aged women. What is the first step to identifying one's desire? Well, I think that um, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle because of the um, the population. Mm-hmm. So my work is about pleasure, but more broadly, it's about the road to pleasure. And, uh, and the road to pleasure is um, I call sexual healing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I de- define it, the road to sexual healing. So I think that when we talk about pleasure... 
the pursuit of pleasure or the road to pleasure, we want to look at the impediments. What's blocking? What are the obstacles on yes. that road or on sure. that path? What's getting in your way? Exactly. Because I think that when there is no pleasure, that means that there's something going on. So I think that it's uh, important, and that's, that's kind of my niche as well, is to, to look at what are those problems, because those things can be very taboo to talk about. So with, with middle-aged women, I want to talk about menopause, if, you, mm. if that's okay. Of course. Okay. <laughs> I really want to dig in <laughs> it's here. It's mandatory. <laughs> so I want to talk about impediments that can arise in menopause or that can be concurrent with this particular age that a woman might be in. So there are uh, a bunch of different impediments. And in terms of, I'll frame this though in, as uh, what can a person do? So let's say that there is, um, pleasure's not there, right? Mm -hmm. I think that what's important is to get some kind of really great professional to help one to find out what is, uh, find out about the impediment or the impediments. Because I think that this is difficult to do alone and that it's great to have a fantastic therapist, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, somebody like yourself who can talk uh, openly and comfortably about sexuality to be able to really, um, yeah, to, to tease out maybe what, what is going on. I think that that's um, something that's very important. For women in middle, in middle age, um, with menopause, let's say, approaching or already having arrived, it's, I think, critically important to get a, a very good physical diagnosis because all kinds of different syndromes and issues can arise because of menopausal issues. Mm -hmm. And in 2014, the, um, the National Menopause Society, American Menopause Society, along with another organization, they changed the designation of, um, we used to call this uh, vaginal atrophy was what it was called if a mm -hmm. woman started to have or a person with a vagina started to have pain with uh, with intercourse mm -hmm. that was hormone hormone related so uh that was that designation was changed it was called something or it is now called something called gsm genitourinary syndrome of menopause hmm. so there are all kinds of um issues as i said that could arise that are associated with this lack of estrogen, and also testosterone, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's not known, it's not widely known. And so there might be um, problems, there might be genitourinary problems that are part of this impediment. So getting a good medical diagnosis is going to be really critical. Because uh, what I found and what the research has found is that very a very small percentage of women are seeking out help and, uh, and, and going on some kind of regimen to, um, to help with different ki these kinds of symptoms. One now study what? showed oh, seven, only 7% of, of women 
menopausal, postmenopausal women were, um, were seeking out some kind of remedy. And what's your sense of providers who are literate in these kind of issues, these kind of postmenopause, postmenopause, perimenopause issues that you're describing. Do you have a sense that this is part of the training for uh, GYNs and they're pretty literate or not necessarily? I think that most GYNs are somewhat literate, but there are, there are definitely specialists and I think that it is, I found myself that it was very important to see a specialist. Um, when I, I started my journey, my sexual healing journey, I started it with my gynecologist. And I told her, I had uh, self-diagnosed myself. I'd had lifelong pelvic pain, mm -hmm. um, painful sex, which is called technically dyspareunia. I had it for decades since my first attempts at 17 i just thought i was broken i had no way of understanding this um, no doctor had ever diagnosed this issue even though i'd seen many many uh, you know doctors and always had very very fraught um, pelvic exams so no doctor picked it up and then i went to i, I found a diagnosis of vaginismus just randomly online which is a pelvic floor. Uh, the pelvic floor muscles are overly tight and weak. And so I self-diagnosed myself um, and I mentioned it to my gynecologist uh, who was beloved by me. I, I, I adored her. I'd been seeing her for 10 years. I felt like an idiot going in and saying, by the way, I think I, ha <laughs> I have this medical condition I just, uh, I never mentioned. Well, she was, um, she was fine with the diagnosis, although when I started to ask her very specific questions about intercourse and why I might be having not just pain on entry, but different kinds of pain, she got very nervous. She was ill-equipped. She was ill-trained. She was not trained in sexuality. She mm -hmm. didn't know. She actually gave me very bizarre advice. And uh, well, she gave me the wrong advice for, for treatment, and she gave me very bizarre information um, about intercourse, about how it works mechanically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and then it took me five years being on this journey where I was seeking out all kinds of different, I saw 15 different kinds of practitioners, tried 30 different healing modalities. I was all doing all of these things and even so it took me five years to even find out that there were gynecologists who specialize in pelvic pain what is do they have a particular uh sort of license or something that one might look for like you know some letters of the alphabet that that have certain credentialing or is this something that you would find out by word of mouth, looking on their website. How does one find um, a, a, a GYN who can talk about sexuality? Yeah, I'm going to give you two resources. Great. So one is I mentioned, um, I called it the American Menopause Society. It's actually the North American Menopause Society. Okay. And their website is menopause.org. Okay. Yeah, menopause.org. 
And okay. you people who are specialists can become members of, um, of this organization. Okay. Yeah. I'll put that in the program notes. That sounds very important and yeah. helpful. And so, um, and so, and they have, I believe they have a, a uh, yeah, find a provider. They mm -hmm. have a, a database of women of, uh, sorry, of practitioners who specialize in, um, in menopause and they have, uh, yeah, I'm looking now, they have, um, not just in the United States, it says look by country. So it looks like this Wonderful. is international. And then Wonderful. I want to give you another uh, international organization that's mm -hmm. very, very important. It's called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Okay. And this society is fantastic. And they also have a database um, where you can find a provider. And you can mm -hmm. find uh, a provider here. It's different kinds of practitioners, but they have had special um, special training uh, in women's sexual health. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so you can find that this is um, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual, sexual Health. Health. Correct. Mm -hmm. So important. Yeah. That sounds so important as a first step. Um, and I think that many people, you're going to pique their curiosity. Some people are further along in the journey, but I think some people are just beginning to wonder if it's possible to, uh, you know, get onto that arc of identifying their desire and then the process of going to get it. Yeah, and I, I'd love to say something else about desire because it is a big issue for women of this age particularly. And I think that I want to go back to the, uh, the arc of pleasure. So I think that, and also equity issues. Mm -hmm. I think that what we call low libido can have a lot of different sources, let's say. It can be the result of a lot of different things. But I, I want to talk about some uh, some ways that it might matter or, or some reasons why people um, may have low libido mm -hmm. that may not be commonly talked about. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes um, there's low libido because there's actually a, a lack of agency. I think that women are still, and especially women our age who have, right, were... Um, you know, had moms who were born in the early 20th century. Um, I think that we still, despite second wave, third wave, fourth wave feminism, that we still believe that our um, uh, that our partner's pleasure is more important than our pleasure. Mm -hmm. And we still might believe that it is our duty to just kind of lie there and get it over with. And I think that sometimes low libido comes from that, comes from a feeling of like, well, you know what? I'm done. I'm uh, done. I'm done just lying here. And, you know, I'm 50. I don't have to do that. <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> I don't have to just lie there. You know, I've got a voice and I'm going to say, honey, I'm done. I'm not going to do this for you anymore. So sometimes it actually comes from there. It comes from, um, from the, the quality of the sexes is lacking. It can come because of this equity issue. It can come because, um, or not come, so to speak. 
because there's a lack of pleasure education because that concept of sex has always been okay uh, my partner's gonna you know warm me up perhaps and then we're gonna go to it you know so that he can have um, an orgasm and that may be something that um, this person may not feel that they have another way of framing things that where they would have a lot more agency where their own desire, here's that arc again, where their, their own desire would come into play, where they could actually redefine what that sex looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this has a relationship as well with, um, with menopausal symptoms. Let's say they're starting to be pelvic pain. Well, if they're starting to be pain and your sex is oriented, is organized exclusively around intercourse, well, of course, it's going to seem very unappetizing, right. and you're not going to be in the mood for it. <laughs> right. Um, right. These, these, there, there's a couple things coming together at once, and I'm also right. thinking of this time now of uh, this this phase of development, and we talk mm-hmm. about the gray divorce, where people are perhaps looking at their partners and saying, well, we raised our family, and now what? Because right. I don't know, you know, there's not much there, and I'm sure that can have an impact on sexual desire as well. Most definitely, right? Because then if you're questioning your desire, do I have a desire for this person physically? Do I have a desire to stay in this partnership, right? So I think that there are, yeah, definitely there's a a lot of questioning that can happen. But if the answer is yes, I have a desire to stay in this partnership. Mm -hmm. And yes, I do still have a desire for this partner, you know, a desire, some desire somewhere, maybe it's... um, you know, hiding or small, but there is something there, some spark that, um, that still remains, then I think maybe um, looking at these other ways of, of framing sexual encounters that, is go- that are going to have um, or call upon more agency, more sex education, um, more uh, equality, many times that can... Um, can really awaken or really get that spark to be, um, you know, more sparky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's, I love that. So Laura, where can people find out more about you? This is such a fascinating uh, topic and there's so many sort of uh, branches off it that are, you know, it's so complex and so speaks to the human experience and so in such important ways. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, the best place is just to visit my website, Mm laurazam.com. And I have resources there. I, I just started a blog. And, uh, of course, buying my book, because in the back of my book, I've got, well, I've got, you know, the story itself, which I hope is um, helpful for people that they see that they're not alone and don't have to feel ashamed of their own sexual issues. Um, but in the back of my book, I also have a lengthy appendix where I, um, I, I uh, detail different resources uh, and in the book itself, I also, in each chapter, I have uh, 
different exercises that people can do to uh, reconnect with their own sense of uh, pleasure and sexual health. What a, what a beautiful thing. Laura Zamp, thank you so much. I know you and I could talk for probably <laughs> 10 hours and yes. just sort of have to stop for a snack and a pee break. That is what we would do. Uh, I, I, I love your work. It's so important. And I really appreciate your time uh, this morning. Uh, I can't wait for people to hear this episode. And I wish you the best of luck with your book and all of the projects that you're working on. Thank you so much. And I, I can't wait till the pandemic is over and I'll come up to Syracuse and we can have a, a Yay. long... <laughs> In the green spaces. We'll find some green spaces. I can't wait. I can't Thank wait. Thank you. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.